M-S-W Media. Hey everybody, it's AG and welcome to Refried Beans, where we play an episode of the Daily Beans podcast from the same week, either one, two, or three years ago, so we can see how far we've come. So please enjoy this episode from days gone by and note the date in the intro. Refried beans. I like refried beans. That's why I want to try fried beans, because maybe they're just as good and we're, we're wasting time. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, November 21st, 2022. Today, Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed Jack Smith, special counsel to investigate Donald Trump. A shooting at an LGBTQ plus club in Colorado Springs with an assault weapon leaves five dead and 18 injured. A GOP operative is convicted of funneling money to Donald Trump. A Florida judge blocks DeSantis's anti-woke law for colleges. And evidence shows Justice Alito leaked the Hobby Lobby decision before it was released. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Boy, we couldn't have had a busier weekend of news that began on Friday and just kept going, including this really, really terrifying and disturbing story about the Supreme Court and Justice Alito that dropped on a Saturday. And it just kept going throughout the weekend. Later in this show today, I'm going to be talking with the author of Where Law Ends, Andrew Weissman, who has co-authored a model prosecution memo for the documents case alongside other brilliant legal minds like Joyce Vance, Norm Eisen, and Ryan Goodman of Just Security. And with the news of the appointment of a special counsel, I will not be starting a podcast called Jack Smith, She Wrote, but you can get all things special counsel right here on The Beans with appropriate profanity. And we have yet another shooting with an assault rifle targeting the LGBTQ plus community. There are five dead and 18 injured at a nightclub in Colorado Springs. This is a direct result of violent political rhetoric coming from the MAGA side. The suspect is in custody, apparently a patron of the club took his handgun away from him and hit him in the head with it. And that's what ended the shooting spree. Now, I'm not going to repeat his name. He's in custody, but we'll keep you up to speed as to motive as details become available. But it seems pretty obvious. I'm hoping there will be hate crimes charges, federal charges. I hope they throw the book at the kid. And then we need to ban assault weapons in the United States, which Joe Biden is calling for. So this is absolutely tragic. Of course, all of my thoughts and my love go out to... The community of Colorado Springs, the LGBTQ plus community there as well, family and friends and everyone who was impacted by this absolutely disgusting attack on peaceful people. So very sad by that news today. Uh, We do have a lot to get to. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. Friday, Merrick Garland appointed a special counsel to investigate Donald Trump in two of the criminal probes currently underway including the fraudulent elector scheme to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power and the Mar-a-Lago documents case. His name is Jack Smith. He's a former Hague war crimes prosecutor, former AUSA, worked at EDNY for a while, former chief of public integrity unit at the Department of Justice. Oddly enough, he worked there alongside Donald's lawyer, Jim Trusty, but I think he was in a different unit. I think he was in the crimes unit. Now, a lot of people are bafflingly upset by this appointment, but I've been calling for a special counsel for a long time. Back in October of 2021, 
in fact, over a year ago. And here's why. First, the power. A special counsel has prosecutorial powers. They can grant all their team members the full power of a U.S. attorney. They can indict and their subpoenas are toothy because they're grand jury subpoenas. And if you flout a grand jury subpoena, you can go to jail or be fined or both. Second, speed. I know you feel like Mueller and Durham took forever. And there, you know, it did take two years for them to wind down, well, three years for Durham and, and write a report, but it only took five months before Mueller started making it rain indictments on the likes of Manafort and Gates, for example. It would be their only focus, by the way, these two investigations. Unlike a U.S. attorney in D.C. or the FBI without a special counsel, they have a ton of things that they have to investigate. And both Jack Smith and Merrick Garland say speed and urgency are of the utmost importance to them. Third, transparency. Unlike the DOJ or Congress, a special counsel is required to disclose who and why they did or didn't prosecute. And if the AG narrows the scope or blocks an indictment, they must tell Congress. DOJ doesn't have to tell us shit. And finally, independence. Special counsel has full power of a U.S. attorney and insulates the attorney general and the FBI from things they probably don't want to be involved in. Sure, the select committee is bipartisan, but a special counsel is nonpartisan. And sure, the GOP will hem and haw about politicization, but appointing a special counsel isn't about silencing them. It's about doing the right thing in the eyes of history and for the independence of the department. Now, some say, what took so long to appoint a special counsel? Well, we probably won't know that, but Merrick Garland, I think, wanted to hold this probe close to his chest for as long as he could. But once Donald announced for president, the conflict of interest presented by an appointee of Donald's political opponent became apparent, especially when Biden said he intends to run for president again. And this is not Garland working out of fear or favor. If he feared prosecution or favored Donald, he would have kept the probe himself and shut it down via an internal memo that we would never see because it would be protected by the deliberative process privilege. Now, others are saying this will be another Mueller investigation, but let me tell you how it's not. First, Jack Smith will not be working under the constant threat of being fired or having his investigation curtailed. Also, Mueller knew from the outset of his investigation he would not charge a sitting president because of an OLC memo, but he continued his work in the hopes that it would prompt Congress to act. He wanted to get all the facts and testimony while it was fresh in people's minds. But now there is no Office of Legal Counsel memo that restricts Jack Smith, as Donald is no longer president. And there's no OLC memo that says you can't indict a candidate for president. And finally, The one OLC memo that Meadows and Bannon tried to cite that would give them blanket immunity from testifying has already been debunked by this Department of Justice in a filing in the Meadows case. Remember how we said that was really important? DOJ has said the memo Meadows was referring to does not give him absolute immunity. And as a result, he can be called to testify. He can be indicted, et cetera, et cetera. And Meadows has been ordered to respond to the 1-6 subpoena. That battle has been settled as this special counsel comes into office. Also, no one can use privilege claims any longer as the Department of Justice has already won those battles in the courts with Amy Berman Jackson, ordering folks like the Pats, Pat Philbin, Pat Cipollone, Greg Jacob, Mark Short, ordered them all to testify, probably Eric Hirschman. The executive privilege belongs to Joe Biden. And time and again, Joe Biden has refused to invoke it for Donald. Also, there is no Rosenstein to land the plane nor is there a Bill Barr to spin the findings of this special counsel. Never forget, Rod Rosenstein wrote an exceedingly narrow scope for Mueller. And not only did Barr sit on the findings for three weeks and lie about them 
to the point Mueller made calls and wrote letters. But the Department of Justice will not write privileged internal memos outlining why Donald shouldn't be charged with crimes. Those people don't exist in the department anymore. And time-wise, I don't think this is going to cause a delay, and most experts agree. Jack Smith won't have to assemble a whole new team. Most of his team will include prosecutors and agents that have already been working on the case. And that was mostly true for, for Mueller, but he did take a few weeks to stand up that office. And uh, this one, I think, will take days. And don't forget, so many people have already testified or have been subpoenaed, including the aforementioned Pats, Greg Jacob, Mark Short, Kosh Patel has testified already in the documents case. And the Department of Justice issued like 40 or 50 subpoenas for testimony before that 60-day election blackout period that happened in early September, started in September. Jack Smith also has the benefit of the entirety of the January 6th committee work product, which they began handing over months ago, and they'll release all their evidence to special counsel in the coming weeks. Not so Jack Smith can rely on it instead of doing his own work, but so he can compare the transcripts to those from the grand jury and look for inconsistencies that might impeach his witnesses at trial and remedy that, fix them. And finally, not only is Jack Smith closer to his real-world practical experience than Mueller was, and not only does he have the entire Mueller investigation as a very recent example of best practices and what not to do, but he's low profile. Mueller spent 12 years as the FBI director, but Jack Smith, a little less well-known. I do not believe Garland would have appointed a special counsel if he weren't okay with prosecuting Donald. So I look forward to this investigation. And as with Garland himself, if this prosecutor declines to prosecute on anything other than the facts in the law, meaning if he uses prosecutorial discretion to say, well, I have all the facts in the law on my side, but I just don't feel like it's the right thing to do for political reasons or because we have to look ahead or whatever, I would consider that a death knell for the rule of law in America. And I just don't see it going that way. And from what I gather from my conversation with Andrew Weissman, which you'll hear a little bit later in the show, Jack Smith doesn't shy away from difficult cases. He's very aggressive. So welcome special counsel Jack Smith. Up next from The Times, an absolutely disturbing story about conservative influence on the Supreme Court. As SCOTUS investigates the extraordinary leak this spring on a draft opinion of the decision that overturned Roe, A former anti-abortion leader has come forward claiming that another breach occurred in 2014 in a landmark case involving contraception and religious rights. In a letter to Chief Justice John Roberts and in interviews with the New York Times, the Reverend Bob Schenck said he was told the outcome of the 2014 Hobby Lobby case weeks before it was announced. He used that information to prepare a public relations push, according to records, and he said that the last minute he tipped off the president of Hobby Lobby the craft store chain owned by a Christian evangelicals that was the winning party in the case. At the last minute, he tipped off the president of Hobby Lobby. Mr. Shank's allegation creates an unusual, contentious situation. A minister who spent years at the center of anti-abortion movements now turned whistleblower, a denial by a sitting justice, Alito, and an institution that shows little outward sign of getting to the bottom of the recent leak of the abortion ruling or following up on Shank's allegation. Now, Schenck, who used to lead an evangelical nonprofit in Washington, said he learned about the Hobby Lobby opinion because he had worked for years, years to exploit the court's permeability. He gained access through faith, through favors traded with gatekeepers, and through wealthy donors to his organization, abortion opponents whom he called stealth missionaries. And that's the buried lead here. Not only that Alito leaked the Hobby Lobby decision, 
but that the stealth missionaries were working for years to exploit the court. They go on to tell you a little bit about the story. In early June 2014, an Ohio couple who were the Shanks star donors shared a meal with Alito and his wife, Martha Ann. A day later, Gail Wright, one of the pair, contacted Shank, according to an email that the Times saw. Rob, if you want some interesting news, please call. No emails. Shank said Mrs. Wright told him that the decision would be favorable to Hobby Lobby and that Justice Alito had written the majority opinion. Three weeks later, that's exactly what happened. The court ruled in a 5-4 vote that requiring family-owned corporations to pay for insurance covering contraception violated their religious freedoms. Now, Alito has denied the allegation, but in interviews and thousands of emails and other records that Shank shared with the Times, he provided details of the effort he called the Ministry of Emboldenment. Mr. Shank recruited wealthy donors like Mrs. Wright and her husband, encouraging them to invite some of the justices to meals, to their vacation homes, or to private clubs. He advised allies to contribute money to the Supreme Court Historical Society and then mingle with justices at its functions. He ingratiated himself with court officials who could help give him access, according to records and emails. I really recommend reading this full article by Jody Cantor and Joe Becker at the Times. It's very, very disturbing. There needs to be a Senate judiciary investigation into this and into the leak of the Hobbs decision, in my opinion. And a Republican political strategist was convicted of illegally helping a Russian businessman contribute to Donald Trump's presidential campaign in 2016. Jesse Benton, 44, was pardoned by Trump in 2020 for a different campaign finance crime months before he was indicted again on six counts relating to facilitating an illegal foreign campaign donation. He was found guilty Thursday on all six counts. Elections, quote, reflect the values and the priorities and the beliefs of American citizens. That's Assistant U.S. Attorney Michelle Parikh in her closing argument. Jesse Benton, quote, by his actions, did damage to those principles. The evidence at trial showed Benton bought a $25,000 ticket to a September 2016 RNC event on behalf of Roman Vasilenko, a Russian naval officer turned multi-level marketer. Vasilenko is under investigation in Russia for allegedly running a pyramid scheme, according to the Commerçant newspaper. He could not be reached for comment. The donation got Vasilenko a picture with Trump and entrance to a business roundtable with the future president. Vasilenko connected with Benton through Doug Weed, an evangelical ally of the Bush family who was also involved in a multi-level marketing scheme. Vasilenko sent $100,000 to Benton, who was working for a pro-Trump super PAC at the time, supposedly for consulting services. Benton subsequently donated $25,000 to the RNC by credit card to cover the ticket. So. No collusion. And finally, a federal judge on Thursday halted a key piece of the Stop Woke Act touted by DeSantis, blocking state officials from enforcing what he called a positively dystopian policy, restricting how lessons on race and gender can be taught in colleges and universities. The 138-page order from Chief U.S. District Judge Mark Walker is being heralded as a major win for campus free speech by the groups who challenged the state. The temporary injunction granted by Walker over the anti-woke law, has significant implications for policies in Florida, including a pending university tenure review rule that requires professors to abide by it. Quote, it was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13, and the powers in charge of Florida's public university system have declared the state has unfettered authority to muzzle its professors in the name of freedom. That's what the judge wrote, citing 1984. 
Walker was appointed by Obama, by the way. Florida's Republican-led legislature approved the anti-woke legislation, Florida House Bill 7, or the Individual Freedom Act earlier this year. The law directly inspired by DeSantis expands Florida anti-discrimination laws to prohibit schools and companies from leveling guilt or blame to students and employees based on race or sex. It takes aim at lessons over issues like white privilege by creating new protections for students and workers, including that a person should not be instructed to feel guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress due to their race, color, sex, or national origin. Brian Griffin, a spokesperson for the governor, said the administration will appeal. All right, we'll be right back with Andrew Weissman, followed by the good news. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Happy and honored to be joined today by former Mueller prosecutor, a friend of mine, and the author of the book, Where Law Ends, which you need to pick up now more than ever. If you haven't read it before, please welcome Andrew Weissman. Hi, Andrew. Hi, how are you? You know, it, it is actually, I hate to, I, I really hate plugging a book and let alone my book, but it actually, now that we're going to have it be under another special counsel, it wouldn't be bad for people to sort of read about upsides and downsides of the current rules. Um, you know, which I definitely address. Yeah, agree, agree 100%. And a lot of people are already likening this to possibly the Manafort investigation, which you were the lead on, Team M, which you write about extensively in your book uh, about how that went down. Uh, Although uh, I think from what the experts are saying, by the way, everyone, breaking news, Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel. (laughs) It's Jack Smith. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, so yeah, that. Yeah, to to investigate. That's so five minutes ago. (laughs) I know, I know. I'm like, I'm talking like everyone already knows everything, but they probably do, folks who listen to this program. Uh, So his name is Jack Smith. He's a former prosecutor from The Hague. He was chief of the Public Integrity Unit Department of Justice. He's an AUSA, worked at the Eastern District of New York, among other places. Uh, and, uh, so now it will be his baby. I, I, you know, I, I kind of assume that this is, gen, you know, per his statement that came out, he wants to do this expeditiously and there won't be any slowdown or flag of this. And Renato Mariotti is saying this is not really an indication that Merrick Garland wants to wind down these investigations. <laughs> uh, but he's going to be looking at the, you know, the fraudulent elector scheme January 6th, but not the boots on the ground. Uh, and he's going to be looking at the Mar-a-Lago documents case that those are his two Uh, And any other things that arose or will arise uh, out of those two, according to the press release that I just a second ago got through reading, uh, because this is very fresh news. But your book is, is, I think, and, you know, if we talk about the Manafort case, a lot of folks are like, oh, this is going to take years now. But I I really don't see it that way. What do you think? What are your thoughts on the timeline? Um, Well, I think one thing that is useful for people to know is that um, Jack Smith is an extremely experienced prosecutor. Um, I know him from my EDNY days. Um, We overlapped for a considerable amount of time. We also overlapped when I was uh, at the fraud section because he, um, I I believe he was the number two um, uh, in uh, one of the attorney's offices. um, And um, he's extremely aggressive. He's handled a whole series of cases. I don't think anything about the purview that's been given to him is going to in any way be a challenge. I think the sort of huge public nature of it is going to is going to be new for anyone. Um, but he's also, I think, the other thing is he's an extremely aggressive prosecutor. In other words, he is not a timid choice. Um, he is not going to be. 
um, concerned if he thinks that it is the right thing to do to bring a case and it is consistent with Department of Justice policy and precedent, he is going to do it. He is not somebody who's concerned that he might lose for some extraneous reason and is not going to bring a case for that reason. Um, he is not going to be concerned about his next job and how this affects it. He is going to, he is sort of in that sense, he is the, the best of the department. Um, he's going to be doing it making decisions for the right reasons consistent with the department policy. Oh, well, that's good news. That's very good to hear um, because, you know, a lot of us are now just learning who he is, but you you know him from from experience, from working alongside of him, overlapping at EDMY and, and whatnot. Now, something that uh, as the special, special counsel uh, he would be tasked with doing is to either make a, a, a prosecution memo or a declination decision and speaking of that, you, along with several other just experts in the field, Ryan Goodman, Joyce Vance, Norm Eisen, uh, the, the whole there's just a whole long list here of folks. You got together and you wrote a 175, almost 175 page model prosecution memo for the Mar-a-Lago documents case. And of course, we know Barb McQuaid back in February did uh, a model prosecution memo for the January 6th fraudulent elector scheme. So can you talk a little bit about what, uh, how much work went into this? How long have you been working on this uh, memo? Uh, quite a long time. Um, you know, it it started out um, where we were going to do something um, a little bit shorter and sweeter. Um, we looked at Barb's model, you know, which was terrific. And then um, as we were sort of doing it and we thought about the topic and what the department would be doing, um, we just decided we would just do as thorough a job as possible. Um, and our main audience really wasn't the Department of Justice to have them read it and to get ideas or think, help them think through it. The, our main audience is the public. Um, and that because the public doesn't see uh, a Department of Justice prosecution memo. And this was sort of a way of saying, you know, this is the kind of memo that is prepared every single day at the department before an indictment is brought. Maybe not as detailed as this one because of the nature of the case. So we just thought it would be very useful to lay out the facts as known um the law that that could apply and we identified a number of other statutes that had not been flagged um, as potential crimes um application of the facts to the law um and um then going through defenses and then finally we looked at i think a really important issue and i in many ways this is always my favorite part of this which is we looked at the department of justice precedent for cases that were comparable um, because we knew that Merrick Garland and now Jack Smith will be really governed by making sure that Donald Trump is treated no better or worse than other people in similar, similar situations. And so we really did a deep, deep dive into that topic. Yeah. And that uh, honestly, that was my, I mean, the whole thing is incredible, but that was my favorite part, too was reading all the prosecutions that are similar, starting with uh, Kingsbury, I believe, uh, and listing just so many of them. And then also some declinations that that uh, similarly situated, but but not enough for them to be prosecuted. Uh, and I, I thought that that was, you know, that was likewise. That's when I started asking, who's this for? Is this for the public or is this for the Department of Justice to read? Yeah. Um, 
And, it, and you know, this could be an, and it's not a A or B, it can be A and B. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. But, I, but I, I do think that when I was at least thinking about it, I was thinking about it as something for the public. I obviously thought that the department might, you know, be interested in read it, but, you know, you never know if that's going to happen. Oh, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Um, and I also wanted to talk about, you know, you, you said that there were a couple other statutes in here that... Um, hadn't sure. been addressed like previously in the search warrant affidavit or uh, anything like that. And that is uh, 18 U.S. Code 641 and 18 U.S. Code 402. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. So um, first, uh, those statutes were not listed as, as one of the three crimes in the search warrant. But it's important for listeners to know that the government isn't isn't um, limited in bringing charges to just those three, that was the basis for doing the search. But in deciding what to charge, there, you know, any any facts and that support any particular um, appropriate legal theory can be included. So, with that in mind, um, and this is where I do think we we have something to add to the department because at least at the time of the search, the people who are on the case were sort of national security folks. And 641 is is sort of a sort of standard fare for criminal folks like me. I, th- I think of myself as like an AUSA who is, uh, you know, very steeped in normal criminal uh, law, and then only afterwards became a national security lawyer. So 641 is just theft of government property. Really simple case, and we talk about how that is really the core of what happened here. And it avoids a lot of potential downsides. It doesn't matter if the documents are classified or not classified. It doesn't matter um, about the president's intent at the moment they were taken um, from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. It's a, a question of, did he convert them thereafter to his own use without returning them? Um, it doesn't raise all these issues about if there's really sensitive information in there, that's not something that would have to be used at trial. It is simply a question of, did he take government property? So it's like a, it's a nice, clean, easy thing. And I think it's, you know, when you're a prosecutor, you look for things that are very sort of just the things that fit really closely with the facts so that it's just an easy story to tell to a jury. And jurors tend to have a lot of common sense. So this is just, you know, when you leave your job, don't take your employer's things. And and something that um, I'm really glad that you explained in detail, because I was having a little bit of like some nightmares from the, the Trump 2016 Trump Tower meeting, where they were, you know, where Mueller said that there were, they would have a hard time assigning value to those, to the that dirt, uh, which which really surprised me because why? I mean, there's a whole industry and a market that assigns value to Oppo Research, um, but you you spelled it out uh, in there because I think if it's less than a thousand dollars, it's a misdemeanor. If it's more than a thousand dollars, it's a felony. Yeah. And you said this would be more than a thousand dollars, and here's why. Can you talk about why we shouldn't worry about somebody saying we had a hard time assigning value to these documents? Sure. By the way, the Trump Tower meeting had had other issues related to that because they never gave the dirt. So it was hard to assign a value because they, nothing sort of came out of it. Um, so th- th- it was a more complicated situation. Um, so here, here's the simplest, which is 
the the classified documents um, are the kind of thing that you're entitled to sort of ask, what would the thieves market be for that? Um, so for some of these, we're we're not talking about over a thousand dollars. We could be talking about substantially more than a million dollars. This is one where the government doesn't have to worry about that. It just has to be a thousand dollars plus, you know, plus a, a nickel. Um, so one easy way is, is just that, um, what would somebody pay for this? Um, and the other is there's value in terms of, um, sort of that you can infer from like what the government has to do to get the stuff back. If it was really not worth a lot, uh, to them, uh, it would also be, um, something that the court and then the jury can consider in determining a value. So I just think that's going to be the least of it. It's also given this, it's also in the aggregate. So if you had each thing worth a dollar and you took a thousand things, you're at a thousand dollars. Um, and so, you know, just ask yourself if somebody was putting up for auction, the Kim Jong-un love letters, would somebody bid over a thousand dollars in the aggregate for those letters? Um, all of those are ways, and and just to, by going through the various things with you, you see how this is not even a speed bump. And just to be clear, the the worst case scenario is it would be a misdemeanor, and somebody can do up to a year in jail for a misdemeanor. Mm-hmm. And then uh, tell us about um, a four hundred two. Yeah, so four hundred two is um, is it also a very simple um, or seemingly simple case, um, which is. If you get a subpoena, whether it's a grand jury subpoena or a trial subpoena, and you intentionally disobey it, that's a violation of 402. It's just it's failure to comply with a subpoena. So again, it's like a nice, simple, clear, basic construct. Um, uh, I do think that the 1519 obstruction charge is also a good one and is strong, and it goes to sort of the overarching obstruction of not just the department, but the archives. But 402 would go to the the disobeying of the grand jury subpoena. We do flag something that I, I do think it's worth people noting, and it's a little in the weeds, which is the department did something that I still find a little inexplicable, um, and there may be facts to, to, that help explain it. But the grand jury subpoena was not issued to Donald Trump personally. The grand jury subpoena was directed to the office of Donald J. Trump. And so that means that the that the only entity that had to comply was that office. And that meant they, they, they only had to produce documents that were in the possession, custody, control of the office of Donald J. Trump. So if you were trying to bring a um, charge based on a failure, an intentional failure to comply with that, you would have to show that the documents at issue that were not returned were in the custody of the, that office and that Donald Trump knew that as well, um, that he didn't believe they were in his personal custody and to the exclusion of the office. And I, I actually think that may, depending on what additional facts the government may have, that could make this not a good charge. Um, because it's not clear to me why the government didn't issue two grand jury subpoenas, one to the 
um, former president personally and one to the office. So that's a wrinkle that we identify. And one of the things we do in this memo is do just that. We want to flesh out potential issues that um, could be raised uh, that the government would need to consider um, so that its case is is meritorious. Yeah. Now, um, of course, the the question of the year that I'm sure will be asked of you a million times. Are, have you gotten any phone calls to be on this team? Oh, I'm I'm not going back to the government. <laughs> and I'm not going back to the government. And high five. Me neither, dude. Me neither. <laughs> and, yeah, I, and I mean, I love the department. I was there for 21 years. It is nothing about uh, the department or its current people. Also, I would be, you know, I was, you know, I, I just think they don't want and they shouldn't want people who are on the Mueller special counsel. Um, you know, there, there'll be a whole fresh crew of people to be attacked by Donald Trump. Right. Yeah. All new. Yeah. Uh, new punching bags. So I, I'm assuming that folks like David Raskin, who was brought over from Kansas City, Mo, and, and Wyndham, who was brought in, uh, will will probably be on that team since they've been working these investigations themselves. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine that they would be uh, they would be they, they, I can't imagine they'd be taken off. I mean, there's, you know, even even with Mueller, the the couple people who had actually you guys just maybe it's just one who had been working on the matter um, transitioned to us. Um, so here where there's so much work that had been done and uh, they, they can't imagine that's not going to be the case. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I appreciate your time today. And I really encourage I've shared this on all my social medias, this document. Uh, it's it's fascinating uh, to read through it and to sort of see how the statutes apply, the elements of the statutes that need to be met. But again, that whole section on the comparison of like cases, I think, is so important to understand. It gives you a really solid idea of, boy, if Garland or well, now John Smith, Jack Smith doesn't indict here. He is not, you know, seemingly going by the history of of uh, of these typical kinds of cases. So uh, it'd be interesting to see um, how how this how this plays out. But also, I mean, you know, with with David Raskin, who was a very uh, knowledgeable prosecutor who has gone to trial for these kinds of, you know, he's Sipa, well known, you know, and and that I from my understanding is it true that because it's a SIPA case, it could take longer to get on the docket. Is that, do you know anything about that? If they indict. <laughs> if there's an indictment, there's a provision that, that the government can apply, use to, to protect highly classified information from, um, from being disseminated. Um, yes, it does take a little bit longer um, when you're invoking that in terms of filings that need to be made. Um, there does seem to, there does usually need to be at least one person on the defense team who has um, appropriate clearance for some of those discussions, not all. Um, so it can take a little bit longer, but it, it, it you know, it should it shouldn't have any effect on the issue of whether whether and when a charge occurs. Yeah. And I, I think you had mentioned in your document in this prosecution memo. Uh, that um, Kingsbury, even though she had tons of documents, they only used like 20 of them at trial. Like you don't have to use them all, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one where you, the things that you're most concerned about, you don't have to charge. And here it appears by all accounts that there'll be uh, quite a large choice of things to 
rely on. And one of the reasons, again, to go back to the 641 theft of government property case is, you know, you don't have to, for that charge, you wouldn't have to even use any classified documents. You could, um, but you don't have to. Yeah. And I I think we're about, we're only a few weeks away from them getting the rest of the unclassified stuff back from, from Judge Deary, whether it be finishing the review or the 11th Circuit tossing it out. I think, well, I think they'll have everything in their hands that they need. So Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks to know. Thank you. Yeah. And everybody, you really should, if you haven't read Where Law Ends uh, by uh, by Andrew, you need to pick it up. It's going to be a great refresher. Um, uh, and uh, with this new appointment of this special counsel, there's a lot of things that are in there that, that are going to really help you understand and navigate your way through the news as it happens with this with regard to this appointment. Thank you so much, Andrew Weissman. Thank you. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news? Good news, good news. And if you have any good news or confessions or corrections, or you want to send me a shout out to somebody you love, or you want to tell me about your small business or what you're creating, or Halloween photos, holiday pictures, show me your Thanksgiving spread. I want to see it. Send it all to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. First up from Erica, pronouns she and her. Hi, Beans Queens. I heard your request for more What the Mutt submissions, and I'm happy to oblige. Quick backstory, which is also a bit of good news. My husband had never had a pet when I met him, so it took a little convincing before he would consider the possibility. Enter the COVID pandemic and a sudden abundance of downtime at home, and I finally had my opportunity to get him to the local shelter, where we met five-month-old Trace. Within weeks, he had turned my main man into a full-fledged dog dad and proponent of the adopt-don't-shop mentality. These two can frequently be spotted snuggling on the couch, and Trace has become an expert at convincing my husband to surrender a few scraps from his dinner plate. I'm attaching a picture of Trace, who's about 35 pounds for reference. Perhaps that'll help you guess. I've also attached his DNA test results. To say that we were surprised is an understatement. (laughs) Thank you for giving me the news. I'm not hearing on TV or seeing in the daily headlines. Your information and insights are so valuable, and the daily dose of humor is much appreciated. Okay. All right. Pitbull, uh, Staffy, I'm going to say Pitbull, Staffy, and Jack Russell. And then, of course, we got to put a a chow chow in there. All right, let's see what we've got. We have Pitbull, Chihuahua, uh, Treeing Walker Coonhound, Papillon, American Eskimo, Staffordshire Terrier. There's the Staffy and Superman. All right, I got two. I got two of the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven mixes. What a beautiful baby. Hi, Trace. Looks like a good dog. Congratulations. Next up, proud grand auntie. Hello, beans queens. Some good news sprinkled in with some things kids say wrapped into a burrito of joy. My eight-year-old grandniece modeled my refashioned size small crimes and crimes t-shirt, one of those received in error, over top a coincidental justice bathing suit. You can see part of the U and the S peeking through. I briefly explained what the numbers meant to her Canadian grandparents, one of which is my brother, who have been raising her since she was three months old. She instantly broke into a little song and dance, chanting, I'm a Trump, uh-huh, I'm a Trump, uh-huh. <laughs> Later, she went on to win the photography competition for her age. 
at the modeling conference where uh, we we all attended and placed third in sports runway. Third. Awesome. A huge confidence booster for this young girl, but her precious realization was the moment after she won and ran back to us sitting in the audience, certificates in hand, and blurted out, all I get is a piece of paper? (laughs) Thanks for all you do to educate us on both sides of the border about justice and the power of democracy. Let us know when you have a version two of the Crimes and Crimes and Crimes shirt. They're building up. Oh my God, she's adorable. How funny. That's incredible. Look at this beautiful family. Thank you so much for sending that in. And congrats on the piece of paper. <laughs> Next up from Keith, he and him. Hi, AG and DG, longtime listener and patron. I'm writing to express anger and sadness over the mass shooting in Colorado Springs, but also to express love and support for the LGBTQ community. This morning, I looked up LGBTQ organizations in Colorado and found one called One Colorado and made a donation. I also donated to the Human Rights Campaign and posted on my socials to encourage friends and family to donate to those groups like PFLAG or GLAAD or the Trevor Project. Over the past year, I've also made donations to orgs in red states where elected officials have been attacking the community, such as Equality Texas, Equality Florida, and Equality Ohio. I encourage anyone trying to find ways to help to donate to such organizations, but also post on your socials and offer support and love to those who need it. Our LGBTQ friends and family need to know we love them. For good news, my wife and both my children, ages 18 and 20, spent the last few days volunteering for a local veterans organization assembling bags for Thanksgiving and moving large boxes of frozen turkeys off a truck for food distribution event. My back is sore, but it was worth it. Thanks to all veterans for your service, like my dad, who served in the Army in 1965, and of course you, A.G. For pet tax, I'm sending along this pic of our 10-year-old beagle, Jack Russell Mix, Ellie. Last week was her gotcha day, and she's here with her rainbow toy that she loves so much. Unlike the other toys, she has not destroyed this one. <laughs> Look at that. How adorable. Yeah, that looks pretty durable. I gotta get me one of those. Oh, sweet baby dog. And thank you for that. And thank you for all the amazing, incredible support you're giving to the community. Uh, I'm gonna make sure that Dana reads this. Jen, pronoun she and her. Things kids say. Hey, AG and DG and the entire fabulous world of the Leguminati. Love you too, Beans Queens. You're the joy of my morning commute. And thanks for all you do. So kids say all sorts of things. My son came home from school today and I actually got him to help me put some groceries away. Shocker, I know. He asked me what these blue and gray cans were in the fridge. I said, that's beer. Is that alcohol? He asked. I replied, yes, it is. Quote, Officer Mark came to school today and told me every hour is a good hour to drink alcohol. Yep, that's what he said. (laughs) Overcoming my snickering, I realized the lesson was actually to limit yourself to one drink an hour. (laughs) However, my son is in the third grade, and I don't think kids need those life lessons just yet. For my pet tax, and since you haven't had some what the mutt lately, I present to you my woofy, pronounced woofay. I got it. She's nicknamed Boo Boo for short, but it's the same number of syllables. I digress. What's the mutt? Okay. Um, Old English Sheepdog. This is an interesting mix. Old English Sheepdog. Wheaton, maybe a Wheaton, and maybe some Poodle. And then, of course, Chow Chow. Let's see. Old English Sheepdog and Irish Wolfhound. Ah, (laughs) I was so close. Maybe I just didn't know how big she was. But what a beautiful baby. I can't believe I got the Old English Sheepdog. I don't think we've had a mix with a with an with an OES before, because I was thinking 
that poodle is what uh, gave her the gray. But anyway, gorgeous pup. Thank you for sharing. And everybody, send in your stuff to us. Send in all the good news. We need it now more than ever. You can do that by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. Thanks to Andrew Weissman. Pick up a copy of Where Law Ends. Read it from cover to cover. You're going to need that information for this special counsel investigation. And I will be covering it all with Dana here on The Beans. Dana will be back tomorrow. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been AG and them's the- Refried beans. I like refried beans. The Daily Bean Beans, executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.